Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. I'd like to introduce Wayne Marshall, who has had some huge successes recently. He's a new writer about to break into the scene in early uh, early 2020 with a collection of short stories. Uh, Welcome to Publish or Not, Wayne. Thanks, Ewan. Thanks so much for having me. You entered the Victorian Premier's Literary Awards and were lucky enough to be a runner-up. It was announced in January. From that, you signed with a literary agent who just landed you a deal with a firm press. Now, I've got a quote from the uh, publisher at a firm press, Martin Hughes. Wayne Marshall's stories might be short, but they pack an incredible punch. And I can't believe how strongly each one has stayed with me. Sherl, so that's the name of your upcoming collection is superbly inventive and powerfully and entertaining we can't wait to share this collection and launch wayne's book publishing career so we're getting in early with wayne david (laughs) because helen garner first publicized monkey grip here at 3cr today uh, i'd like to talk with wayne about his writer's journey where should we start wayne well how about we start at the start um for me um writing was secondary to music. I started as a writer writing lyrics for bands from about 14. What were your influences? What sort of bands were you? Oh, the grunge stuff in the early to mid-90s. Yeah, all the Seattle stuff, yeah. So, um, yeah, played in bands from when I was about 14 and was writing songs from about that period. And I probably didn't start seriously writing until my early 20s when I started um, a degree at Vic Uni. At Vicuni, which is where we met in first absolutely. year. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. It's such a huge thing to be here interviewed by you after all this time, my first <laughs> interview on radio. So it's Seems such like, a cool yes, thing. It would have been 2004? 2003 I started. Oh, okay. 2003. Yeah. yeah. Um, but uh, a few years later, you did your honours thesis there at Vicuni, and I supervised it. It was a wonderful thesis. It uh, got you in to do a postgrad qualification in professional writing. Now, although that didn't work out, you are now essentially living the dream of a new writer. What words of advice would you have about people who might be thinking about studying at uni, either undergrad or postgrad in professional writing? Yeah, sure. I mean, it's it's um, you have to generalise a bit, but I think that it's it's doing a course gives you a great foundation in the nuts and bolts of the craft of writing. Um, so on that level, I think absolutely go for it if that's your thing but I don't think that people should feel uh, young writers or writers of any nature should feel pressure that uh, a course is essential either I think that you just um, you need to be reading and you need to be writing and that can happen outside of the university context Um, so you know it's just whatever suits really I think and that's so important isn't it I I don't know if you remember but some of your fellow students didn't read much (laughs) Absolutely. <laughs> yes. Studying professional writing. Yes. Uh, so, and you were a, a very good reader right from the word go. But then after uh, uh, finishing off the postgrad, and you didn't do it, and 50% of people who do start PhDs don't, don't finish, but you decided, okay, I'm at a fork in the road here, and you took some time off. What did you do and why did you do it? 
Okay, so yeah, I tried writing um, my first novel uh, in a university context for a creative writing PhD. Um, I tried that for four years uh, and it didn't work out. After that, I went as far away from that world as I could and went and worked as a meter reader in the bush out in the Macedon Ranges, driving a ute through farm properties and it was just great. It was just absolutely what I needed. Um, just the distance from that world, because the writing world is quite full on sometimes, yeah. I sure. think, and getting distance from that. So I did that for about a year. And then in 2012, uh, my partner and I had just started a family and we had a three-month-old daughter. And at that time, I was diagnosed with bowel cancer. So that was, um, yeah, a huge moment. I didn't all thought of writing at that point was just gone. It just seemed extremely trivial. Survival was the key. Absolutely. Life-threatening uh, yeah. diagnosis like that. And how did though, aside from the you know the, the human consequences of the, with your partner and your daughter, and how did that influence your approach to your writing though? Yeah, it's it was massive. Um, I didn't write again for a while after all the cancer treatments. But when I did in a second round of chemo, I just started it just for me, just for something creative to do in the middle of that. I had chemo on Friday mornings and I would get up for to write for a couple of hours before um, that, before I felt like crap again for the weekend. But and you weren't thinking about publishers or how anyone else I was. It, it was just so liberating in that I just went for the humour and the strangeness that I hadn't perhaps had the courage to go for previously because I just had no concept of having the work ever published or the idea of writing as a career or anything like that was just gone. And so I was just writing for myself. It became a hobby, an obsessive hobby, which is the way I prefer to look at writing generally anyway. I think that works well for me um but during that period i just let go and that was when i had the first leaps as a writer wow i'm taking all this on board because i'm catching up with this too we've only just uh, reconnected after a few years but how ironic that you were writing for yourself thinking of not being published (laughs) and that is where it's going to lead you but there were some important steps along the way and uh, someone we've interviewed here in the show, and I believe she's here with us next week, Melanie Ching, who won the 2016 Victoria Premier's Literary Award and then had her first collection, which is so hard to do, David, to get your first story collection published because publishers tend to want novels to begin with. But she came in, we've interviewed her, and she's back next week. But there's a connection between Wayne Marshall and Melanie Ching. Can you tell us about that Yeah, sure. So a few years after the period that I've been describing, um, I'd had a few of the stories published in local anthology and journals um, and last year in the lead up to the VPLA being um, open for entries there was a po- uh, there was a session at the Wheeler Centre called the Rough Diamonds um, session where the four previous winners of the unpublished manuscript came together to describe their experiences uh, and Melanie had talked about submitting um, what became Australia Day at um, around 40,000 words which was where mine was and I had absolutely um, it wasn't on the radar to submit um, but being a similar word count, um, it was absolutely the thing that made me submit my collection 
uh, for the VPLA. So that was a massive turning point just listening to that. It was huge. So this is an example of Melbourne's writing community, that by sharing these stories, Melanie didn't know who she was influencing, who she was inspiring, and you submitted it, and it was a runner-up, and it was announced in January. As I mentioned earlier, then a literary agent came out of the woodwork and said, hey, I reckon we might sign you, and uh, that literary agent then got you the deal with Affirm Press. So what is the immediate workflow for you and the company months in preparation for publication yeah so the collection uh at the time of shortlisting for the vpla was a little bit under forty thousand words so not book length so when i signed with a firm in march um part of the deal was i was to produce you know three to four more stories um by june 30 so i have a month and a half to go so yeah it's been like i've done nothing else this year but it's the dream to be just writing lots and having a deadline always helps for me prior to the vpla i hadn't written a story in six months at least and having the deadline of submitting for that really helped and like the affirm deadline now is really helping i've been as productive as i've been Ever, creatively. And, and, uh, I understand with deadlines. Uh, I, I'm not of the school of... Uh, who was the guy who said, I love the sound of the deadlines as they go whooshing by? Who was the writer of The Chinese <laughs> Guide to the Galaxy? Oh, Douglas, Douglas Adams. Adams. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, so I, I know what you mean about the deadlines. Do you think it helped having that six-month break prior to sitting down and writing intensively? Yeah, I think so. Um, but there was a part in that without having a deadline, without having anything coming up, where I could analyse ideas too much before going into them and just cut myself out with the doubt of whether stories would work with no time uh, with four months to write four stories. There's just no time to do that. Yeah. So it was just going straight into it, and you just get a sense of whether something is going to work by doing it pretty quickly. Yeah. Coming out from the core of your soul onto the screen or the page, as it may be. Now, just before we're uh, we're nearly up to time, but I would like to ask you about entering competitions and entering literary journals. Obviously, there are pros and cons in entering competitions. It's great if you win. You've done very well there. But sometimes writers have got really good things to say, and it's just not what the judges are looking for, and they get discouraged. However, whether you do or not do or don't go into competitions, what about submitting to literary journals, as you mentioned? Yeah, absolutely. That would be for anyone starting out, for students... Go out and grab all those magazines firstly, the Australian magazines, and read them first up. Get a sense for what they're after. What, but what were the ones you were reading? Sure. So I've had I've had um, three stories in the last three going down swings. So for me, that's just a fantastic magazine. So fun, such a playful thing. But there's also Mianjin, Overland, Island. Yeah. We have a wealth of yeah. of story magazines. Um, as uh, someone coming up, having the submission deadlines to polish your work is is really great for getting that editorial eye, I reckon. Also, when you start finally breaking through and getting a few stories published, um, it's just massive for your confidence, mm. which is, yeah, it's essential. Build that resolve and that motivation. Yep. Okay, and just finally, as we wrap up, uh, you're involved in the Peter Carey Short Story Award and the long list was announced last Monday night. When is the winner announced? Yeah, so the winner is announced on Saturday the 1st, I think, of June. We have uh, a ceremony at the Bacchus Marsh Library. So it's just myself and my friend Jem Tiley Miller and um, a staff member at the Bacchus Marsh Library who've been running this for the past three years. Yep. It's been fantastic. We've had some great stories. We've had, it's been amazing being able to choose our judges. We've had Ryan O'Neill, Jane Rawson, and now Nick Lowe as our judges. And that's just 
being able to choose our favorite riders to judge the competitions has been amazing and we've had amazing winners so yeah we're heading into the business end of this year's Kerry Award. All part of the rich fabric of Melbourne's riding community. Thank you very much for sharing your rider's journey with us this morning Wayne and over to you now David. Well Wayne I hope you come back with the book so we can interview you about the content when it comes in. (laughs) Well thank you you and now dislocation dysfunction and depression these terms are not necessarily ones we like to associate with a child's upbringing but Amra Palich fathoms the forces that shaped her life in her autobiography Things Nobody Knows But Me so Amra welcome to 3CR thank you for having me now the initial stages of your autobiography sees a fractured childhood where you are in jeopardy and there are several forces uh, working on your life that that cause that sort of uh, environment uh, in which you have to grow up. Firstly, I mean, your mother and her situation. Would you like to tell us more about that? Um, Well, my mum is a bipolar sufferer and I wrote this book because I wanted to share a story of, you know, bipolar um, from a non-English speaking background. Um, And while I was writing it, because it took a long time to write, um, there were all these books coming out um, about depression, about um, mental illness, about bipolar. Um, And it was really good to sort of see that that dialogue and see that development um, of the stories being told. And the difference with my mum in terms of her having bipolar is we didn't know what it was. So she spent most of her life just saying, I have nervous breakdowns. And it was only through a teacher that I found out. A school counsellor. That's right. But there's also other factors uh, which either assist or impede this awareness. You're part of a Bosnian diaspora, so to speak. And that, in many ways, um, sort of influenced or shaped your understanding or prevented an understanding of what was going on? Well, it prevented in some ways because um, Bosnia was a part of former Yugoslavia, which was a communist country. And so for a very long time, anything that was different, anything that was out of the norm was stigmatised. People with mental illness um, were just sort of put away, um, were institutionalised. And so there wasn't um, a good understanding of what mental illness was within the community. Um, but the diaspora also helped because the community was so small and because there weren't many, you know, Bosnians. We actually had a lot of people taking care of us and helping us and doing things, you know, in some ways going out on a limb um, to make sure that we were taken care of. But the Bosnian diaspora in some ways was supportive, as you say. Other people came in to help uh, support the children, so mm. to speak. But also there was... Um, dysfunction, can I put it that way, in that mm. community because they're displaced. So there's a lot of feeling and concern and displacement uh, that gets expressed often violently in some instances. Um, I mean, there's there's a case with Lucy, your friend, uh, and the way she's treated by her mother and such mm. like. So you're at jeopardy in, in, a, in a lot of this. Yeah. I mean, we... We had people trying to help us, but there were also, you know, situations where my mum um, was making decisions that she thought were in our interests. She was wanting us. She sort of had this view that she always needed to be married. She needed to have someone to take care of us, have someone to take care of her. Um, 
And this is because, you know, the reason, part of, part of the reason that she got this illness was because of an early marriage and the um, stress of that and, and giving birth um, in Australia when she was 16, not knowing the language, not knowing, um, you know, she didn't know what was happening to her. And also in, the 19, in 1970 when she gave birth, uh, treatment for the psychosis, postnatal psychosis that she suffered, um, was electric shock therapy, and I actually think that there are after effects um, that you know a lifelong effect that that she has suffered from that in terms of emotional blunting and inability to sort of process and deal with emotions, um, and so yeah, those those were things that really impacted on my life. Um, but she. And the process of writing this book was sort of realising that she was doing the best that she could. She was making decisions that she thought were best in terms of trying to find us a father because my father passed away when I was four. Um, but she was making bad decisions and she was also limited in her scope because she only wanted a Bosnian man. man. And so... We can often yeah. be critical of people in those situations, your mother and, and such like, and, and seeing the children in jeopardy. But you actually go back to Bosnia at one stage and all of a sudden the whole framework of the forces and influences, not just on your life, but your mother's life, mm. comes into perspective and actually alters our perception of your mother. So you go back to Bosnia. Now, the landscape in and of itself is totally different. Um, and the landscape was like anything I was unlike anything I'd seen in Australia. The greens were brilliant and it looked like giant Christmas trees lined the streets. Even the light mm -hmm. was different. Mm -hmm. Australia's sun was like a voltage lamp turned up high so that it leached all the colour out of the landscape, while Europe, with its diffused light, was like a dim lamp. But it's not just the landscape. Mm -hmm. It's the social attitudes because when you go back to your grandmother's village, mm -hmm. what do you find as a child? Well, my mum... There was no understanding of what mental illness was. There was no understanding what she was going through. And she had medication that she'd brought from Australia to help stabilise her illness, and then she ran out of that medication. And so she was prescribed um, medication from there, and it just did not help stabilise her mood. And then also bipolar is characterised by the highs, where there's no inhibition. They'll say whatever, spend money, make what we see as irrational choices, and then there's the low. Um, and so my grandparents would just see her behaving irrationally and badly and embarrassing them. Um, and the way that they started coping with that was they would just take her to the hospital and put her in hospital. And the health system there was brutal for mental health patients. But also let's paint a, an even broader perspective because we've got to put in a cultural context, mm. we've got to put in... An historical context, mm -hmm. because Bosnia basically had been sort of through, <laughs> well, World War Two, communism, mm -hmm. division, and this is before then mm -hmm. the crisis that ensued with Bosnia. That's right, before the independence was declared yes. and before Yugoslavia, as we know it, ceased to exist. So the attitudes, firstly, of uh, during World War Two shaped things one way, mm. the communists shaped them another. Mm. So there's that to contend with. But we also have the Muslim-Christian divide as well. Yeah, like I came from a... Um we came from a rural area and so there was very strict division between the Serbs um, and the Bosnians and 
we knew in the street who were the Serbs and my grandparents were very, very um, religious and were like, you do not play, you do not um, associate. Like I, I had a friend, I did. I just knew her as a friend, her name was Godana. Um, she invited me to her house, I went to her house, had a lovely visit and I invited her to my house and brought her home and my grandmother went, what's her name? And I said, Godana, and she said, that's a Serb name. She's not coming in my house. And so I had to go hide out on top of the roof and try and, you know, host her in some way. And obviously the friendship petered out. Um, and that was my experience. But my husband, for example, he came from Sarajevo, an international city where there was a lot of intermarriage and cross-cultural um, relationships and there wasn't that division. Um, but I grew up in, in a space and time that did have that and, you know, was brought up with that. Talking about space and time then, your grandmother's upbringing and there's a lovely reference to molybdomancy. That's right. So um, this is in Bosnian, we call it salivati stravo. And it's basically where they get iron and they melt the iron and um, they perform a ritual to try and chase the devil away, chase the spirits away, chase the third eye away and so she would you know do this melt the the iron around the person and do these prayers um, to try and cleanse them of this and then put the melted iron in water and the shape would give some sort of a um, insight and you can imagine how many times she tried doing that with my mum and it didn't work. But the superstition, the religious beliefs, the cultural experience, the historical impact of these forces are all adding to this mix mm. uh, and you're wending your way through this. Mm. I won't say a, as a feral child, but there's a lot of... I was a feral child. <laughs> I'm, I'm going to gladly own that. <laughs> because, you know, there were times when you were unsupervised and yes. in jeopardy. Yeah. But I think the core of the book actually, or what brings the book together in many ways, are the accounts of the marriages yes. of your grandmother, yes. of your mother, mm. and yourself. Mm. Your grandmother uh, basically was at a, well, we won't call it a party, it was we a gathering. She thought it was a party, but it wasn't. <laughs> it was a drinking game with poker, boys playing poker. And she and her sister had gone. My grandmother noticed Annis leaving, but she assumed he was going to the latrine. She couldn't have imagined that his anger would extend so far as to leave them alone and unchaperoned. When an hour passed and he didn't return, she understood the truth, but it was too late. Unaccustomed to alcohol, Lamia had passed out, and my grandmother found herself alone with my grandfather and his friend. She noticed the way they were looking at her, and she soon realised that their intentions were less than honourable, but she couldn't leave her sister behind. Finally, my grandfather's friend propositioned her. You can choose one of us to marry, or we'll both have you, he said. She fought for breath as panic filled her, her eyes dancing between the two men. She realised her fate had been sealed the moment she decided to stay at the party. She lifted her arm and pointed. Mm. So Courtship. Wow. Well, that's the thing, and, and I sort of... I didn't have very good ideas about marriage and somehow I got married at 19. Um, but I also felt that sense of all these women that came before me, they had no choices. Marriage was a survival. It was a, a way of providing for your family because you couldn't survive without a husband. But you also then talk about your mother's proposal, if yes. we can put it that way. Yes. How much can you tell us about that? Well, 
when she was in Bosnia, um, they kept putting her in the mental hospital and they wouldn't let her leave to come to Australia. And they wouldn't let her leave to come to Australia with me and my brother. And so she realised that the only way she was going to get out was marrying, getting married again. That was to her second husband, but her first... Third. Third, sorry. <laughs> I've got to keep count. Her, um, to when she married Dalil and how mm. that... that courtship when she was 15. That's right. So that was also an arranged marriage. She didn't know. She was visiting family friends uh, and they were arranging for them to be together because he'd returned from Australia to find a bride. And she just thought she's visiting family friends. And they're like, we're going to do a good deed. We're going to do a sev up. We're going to help this poor girl in this, you know, family life where they're struggling and they don't have much to eat. And we'll get her married to someone from Australia and she'll have a lovely life. And she was minding um, the cows in the pasture when the man, um, the family friend and, and Delil were walking to her house and the man called out, we're going to ask your father for your hand in marriage. Um, if you don't want that, speak now. And she didn't and came back and my grandfather said, oh, I've given permission because I thought if I didn't, you would have a terrible life here, like you would always hate me. Um, and that was... That set the course of her life. Mm. It set the course of everything that came afterwards. But then it was a blessing in a sense too because after the Balkan War, we were here. We were the magnet and my whole extended family is now here. We grew up without mm. them my whole life. And then um, they came here. My grandparents were here, my um, aunties, my uncles, my cousins. And so in one sense it destroyed her but in the other sense it created a life that she wouldn't have had otherwise. It's Yes, it's a very fine balancing act. But it, what it does do is it in some ways changes the reader's perspective. We, we're thinking initially, how can a mother uh, not look after her children, etc.? And all of a sudden, we see the depth and dimension of what she's been through. And, ah, you know, we are not as um, sort of biased in her own views then yeah. and, and more sympathetic. That's the journey that I went through. Mm. I, As a child, I didn't know any different. All I knew was this was my mum, this was how she behaved. I didn't realise it was abnormal until I had a point of comparison. And then as an adolescent, I judged her. I found yeah. her wanting. I was very angry about the decisions that she made and the jeopardy that she put me in. And then I finally was able to come to acceptance. Give it dimension and perspective and understanding, mm. and that, that helps. You go through your own courtship, uh, so I'll let the, the reader find that out for themselves, a different period, but again, you almost uh, conform because you find a good Bosnian boy. I do. I'm but... so angry about that. <laughs> I was the black sheep for so long. And then I just... But I married a man who happened to be Bosnian. I didn't marry, marry a Bosnian man. Yeah, but was it's not my your goal. daughter then, Sophia, yes. that provides another form of perspective in yeah. the end in many ways. You, the, you're all telling stories at the end. Yes. And what does Sophia enable you to do or bring about? Well, in, in a sense, she kind of brings us together and she brings this journey full circle because... Um, I think for, for my mum and for me and my grandmother and great-grandmother, things were forced upon us and I'm hoping for her she's going to have much more choice and she will have, you know, opportunities that we don't have. And the way that my husband and I raise her, um, she's a 10-year-old and she's an only and she's precocious, um, 
but stories are a part of, uh, of her life and the fabric of her life. But what's interesting is it's the stories you tell Sophia yes. and the stories Sophia tells your mother because yes. you haven't told your mother. And so there's a, yes. a completion of the circle in some yeah. ways. We have those moments where mum's like, I didn't know, know that. that. But there's, that enables a fuller understanding on her, her behalf. Yeah, she's, she's the bridge between us. Yeah. Yeah. So it's fascinating. Just one quick question before we finish then. In terms of how did the community take to this account? Don't know yet. Don't know yet. Um, well, I don't know how many, like a lot of, in terms of reading for English, like I, um, people reading my books. So I don't know. I, watch this space. Watch this space. <laughs> well, the reader can find out more. The book is Things Nobody Knows But, but Me by Amra Palich. And it's a transit lounge release. And Ewan, you were talking? That was so moving. Uh, I've got to say, listening to Dan Amra. Uh, I uh, interviewed earlier Wayne Marshall about his upcoming collection of short stories called Shell, 